This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Listen to some of the best in modern audio drama right here on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated R and is recommended restricted for anyone under the age of 17. You there, you're under 17, yes, yes, I can see you. Go somewhere else. We'll wait. Okay. Interlude. The Hues of the River. The name of the beast who had sounded the death knell for the town of Waterford in general, and its position as the most exalted manufacturer of quality textiles in the Midlands in particular, was simply economics. Not to say that it did the job single-handedly, oh, it certainly employed its own phalanx of imps to assist in ring duty. Industry, technology, the twin demons of supply and demand. But no matter how sharp the knife they used to slice it, the problem was that no one in the Midlands wanted to afford what it was that Waterford had to sell. And in Waterford's case, it was its unique fabrics. Silks, linens, brocades, corduroys, crepes, drapery, ducks, every conceivable texture and every imaginable color on endless bolts lining the shelves of the many shops of the busy Waterford streets. Or at least that's how it was before everything changed. What went wrong was the coloring process, for you see, the reason Waterford textiles were so unique was that none of them were dyed. At least not in the traditional sense of the word, anyway. You see, Waterford was situated on a particularly narrow stretch of the river. The river. The one river that flows through every land. Every other river, stream, and tributary, somewhere along its length, there is a place that empties into the river. Wherever there is running water, sooner or later, it becomes part of the river. And, more importantly, the part of the river that passes through Waterford. And running water being running water, it has a tendency to carry things. Things like minerals and nutrients, fragments, essences memories. The decaying remains of magnolia petals spread across a stream to celebrate a royal wedding. The runoff from a brackish marsh where desperate soldiers attempted to escape a lost battle, but failed. The sewage of water nymphs and naiads born in cold mountain springs. The overflow of a plain flooded by the tears of a widowed giantess. And not to mention the water that gets washed down your gutter. You know, the kind that has little slicks of rainbows on them caused by motor oil? That stuff, too. All of those things pass through Waterford. And there in the river, the fabric maven set up large clay pots, whose mouths were sealed with filters made of special silk, the production and manufacture of which was a small miracle in and of themselves. The pots were set at dusk and collected at dawn. And each one, when opened, contained a small amount of material that, when distilled, became a a color or pattern for a small to medium-sized bolt of fabric. These were known as the hues of the river. The dyeing process was reasonably simple. The distilled hue was mixed with a mixture of alcohol and distilled water and placed in a large clay pot. Then a medium-sized amount of fabric, say a pure white linen, was wound around a dowel made of marble and lowered into the solution. Then the pot was sealed for a period of four months to a year. The fabric, when complete, was removed from the pot and placed in a drying room next to a low fire for a period of about six weeks. And when it was completely dry, the fabric was then removed to a sunlit room and rolled carefully, whereupon it revealed its true color or pattern. Sometimes you got a single, deep, rich metallic hue, other times an unexpected tartan, flower prints that look like delicate watercolor painting. A sequence of perfectly spaced individual threads might develop a mother-of-pearl luster. And on occasion you get something questionable, like sleds or basketballs. And in one celebrated occasion, a long strip of flannel with a sequence of images on it so pornographic that it became an instant collector's item. This technique also produced an interesting side effect in that each piece of fabric, when draped across the body, 
body had its own unique emotional response. You might find a corduroy, for example, of a deep midnight blue with a slight hint of charcoal in the coloring. But when draped across the shoulders would produce a sense of profound but resigned sadness. Ah, yes, that one, a merchant would say. Made from the ashes of an orphanage that burned to the ground, taking the lives of none of the children, but consuming all of their beloved toys. You, of course, would have to take the merchant's word on this. There was no way of verifying it, but hell, it sounded great. And besides, if you were going to sew up a vest that made you depressed every time you put it on, you may as well have a good story to go along with it, shouldn't you? And so with that, Waterford fabrics became renowned throughout the land, and the peoples came from hundreds, even thousands of miles just to get their hands on them. Or at least, that's how it was. The technique to make them was admittedly slow and inefficient, and the demand was extremely high. And with that, inevitably, came the cheap knockoffs. With names like Water Main, Water Down, and Water Fjord. Initially horrible, cheap, garish, with dyes that would run and no emotional responses whatsoever except in the mind of the purchasers, the fabric mavens of Waterford laughed derisively at these pathetic imitations. But down in their heart, they knew the heat was on. They knew their technique was meticulous and inefficient. And while they were unique with a quality that was unparalleled, a shoddily made knockoff could always be made faster, and with time, its quality could improve. And... It did. Granted, they only got as far as becoming uniform, mass-produced prints with none of the uniqueness in either the color or the pattern of the Waterford stamp. But by any other clothing manufacturing standard, they were pretty good. And they were a lot cheaper and people wanted them. The hammer that crushed the Waterford technique fell 40 years ago. It was the invention of a company called the Grishnak General Magical and Industrial Chemicals Corporation. It came in the form of a treatment that when sprayed upon fabric would impart a temporary emotional response. Shirts filled with breathless excitement, socks that could boost your confidence, extremely erotic undergarments, and of course scary trousers. And while the effect wore off after about six months of regular use, people discovered that was really all the emotional attachment they wanted to their clothing. And more important, the specific emotional response could be controlled. In the end, people preferred clothing that even only temporarily made them happy at parties and sad at funerals. The Waterford technique was extremely interesting and all, but it had fallen mostly out of favor. What good was a brassiere that was made out of an admittedly beautiful fabric, but unfortunately made you think about distant ancient battles, or made you break out into fits of hilarity every time you saw cheese? And so, inevitably, employees were laid off, payments were missed, businesses closed, and mills were shut down. And so, the textile manufacturing town of Waterford went from the most renowned maker of fabrics in the land to a quaint tourist destination or perhaps the sort of place that school children might be sent on a particularly boring field trip. But about a decade or so after the last mill shut down, approximately 23 years ago, something happened. Over the course of several weeks, the citizens of the town couldn't help but notice that a large, expensive car was cruising the streets, stopping at the mills and the empty storefronts and looking at them. The automobile would slide up to a disused factory and perhaps slow down or even pause. A window would roll down and from the darkness of the interior of the car, nothing. No sound, no light. Then the tinted windows would roll up and the car would drive away. This ceased after two months of sporadic and slightly unnerving visits. But then after a clear, chilly Tuesday morning in September, the car suddenly turned up, this time parked in front of City Hall. The back door opened and a blonde woman in a business suit emerged. She entered the mayor's office and after several hours, she came back out with a look of great satisfaction, got in her car and drove away. Two days later, the mayor held a press conference. She announced that she had incredible news. She had brokered an agreement to sell all of the disused textile mills to a major corporation. This organization had spent years researching the Waterford manufacturing technique and believed that they had discovered a way to control it. They would retrofit the mills and they would bring jobs and capital back to the city of Waterford. Their beloved mill town was about to experience a renaissance, or so they were told. And the citizens had their new saviors to thank, Ave Nova Incorporated. 
The motion to sell passed unanimously, and inside of a month, all of the work began. The woman in the expensive business suit, one Martha Greeley, arrived to oversee the installation of equipment the likes of which the people of Waterford had never actually seen before. Large industrial tanks of unique design. Massive proprietary distilling equipment. Massive modern loading docks. And massive rolls of white linen. All in all, the endeavor was, well quite massive. The people of Waterford worked all winter to make sure the production went off without a hitch. Each evening, the traps were laid in the river to collect the hues. But instead of the traditional clay pot, they were long gunmetal tubes. And in place of the silk filters tied to the lid of the pots, each of the tubes was capped with a fine wire mesh made of a sparkling, unknown material. Each morning, the tubes were removed from the river and loaded onto trucks and taken to the distillery. There, they were emptied into large vats and pumped into the distilling machine. And after several noisy, smelly hours of processing... The distilled hues were pumped into large canisters in which there was a roll of white linen. The canisters were sealed, and then they were loaded onto a truck transport bed. And then an 18-wheeler would arrive with an empty transport bed, unhitch, hitch up the full one, and drive away. And thus the process went on six days a week. And every morning, Ms. Martha Greeley would arrive in her expensive car and her expensive suit and oversee the entire process. And all the while, she would flash a perfect smile and say, Wonderful. Brilliant. Magnificent. It's going so much better than we thought it would. She was a terrific boss and very, very easy to please. Although her employees seemed to notice that it was a bit unnerving that her face only seemed to have two settings. Implacable and unreadable, or the perfect smile. And the mayor, watching the fabric-laden trucks pull down the road and into the distance, would always turn to Miss Greeley and ask the same question. So, tell me, my dear, when will we be able to see the finished product? Soon. Miss Greeley would respond, So very soon. And she would smile. And on the routine went in Waterford until the spring came. Or rather, until the spring didn't come. It was late April when the grass usually turns green and the flowers and trees begin to bud. But in spite of the copious rain and the bright sunny days, they didn't. There were no signs of birds or insects either, or squirrels, or vermin, no pests, nothing. It was as if everything was hiding from Waterford. This made the mayor and the citizens extremely uneasy, especially in light of what happened next. The people of Waterford began to complain to one another about the noticeable change in their dreams. Or more to the point, the fact that they weren't having any. It was, for all intents and purposes, as if they had forgotten how. Having gotten exactly nowhere with Ms. Greeley and trying to determine exactly what the nature of the material it was Waterford was producing, the mayor decided on her own course of action. She sent one of her assistants to a city in the east where the Ave Nova Corporation headquarters were supposedly located to find out what exactly was going on here. He returned two weeks later to report that he had been to the address he was given, but it was definitely not the headquarters of the Ave Nova Corporation. And in fact, no one in that town had ever even heard of the Ave Nova Corporation. And checking with several major businesses in the area, he discovered that they had no reference of their ever having been a company called the Ave Nova Corporation. That afternoon, the mayor decided it was time to have a heart-to-heart -heart chat with Ms. Greeley. The mayor of Waterford was one Mrs. Janice Portman, age 63, widowed. She'd been elected by the townspeople overwhelmingly for a whole variety of reasons, not least of which was her distinguished career in the military as a combat mage. Mayor Portman set off for the mill where she knew Ms. Greeley kept her offices but she forbade any other townspeople to come with her. At 4.17pm on April 24th, Mayor Portman entered Ms. Greeley's office. What followed within ten minutes were the unmistakable sounds of a magic battle. Dull, thudding explosions rocked the building. Windows were blown out. One part of the roof was obliterated in a towering column of lightning and fire, while another section collapsed under tons of suddenly forming ice. And then, there was silence. The townspeople burst into the ruined building and discovered their mayor laying mortally wounded to one side. She clutched in her left hand what appeared to be a mask, but upon closer examination turned out to be a human face, comprised entirely of living, warm flesh. It had no muscles, no blood, no eyes, but it did move, twitchingly and reflexively cycling between a placid, unreadable face 
and a perfect smile. If Ms. Greeley had left behind any other remains, they were nowhere to be found, for the inside of the building was a tableau of amazing destruction. And in the violence of the battle, several of the canisters containing the textiles had been blown open. And at last, the citizens had been afforded a glimpse of what it was they had been working on these last few months. The linens had been turned to deep ash gray. But within the threads, there was a subtle texture, a pattern of a deeper gray. A pattern that drew in the eyes and gnawed at the mind. And one that somehow filled the ears with the distant, slightly imperceptible sound of vast swarms of pestilent insects. A plant foreman, overwhelmed by disgust at the cloth, made a horrible mistake. He grabbed the linen to hurl it to one side, and as soon as it touched his bare skin, he fell to the ground, howling in terror. Before fading into a coma and dying an hour later, the mayor breathed one last word. Upstream. And so... That's where a group of the workmen went. And they followed the river for two miles upstream before they found exactly what it was they were looking for. There, in a slow-moving, shallow area of the water, they found ten evenly spaced, upright stone columns. Each was the same deep gray of the linen, and each at the waterline had evenly spaced holes drilled all the way around that the water of the river would seep in and out of. The columns appeared to be hollow, and they appeared to be leaching a dark substance into the water that would dissolve instantly. The workmen fished the columns out of the river one by one. Each was approximately ten feet long and about the width of a good-sized tree. And in spite of being made of stone, none of them were unmanageably heavy. They were laid side by side on the riverbank, and it was determined, after a certain amount of debate, that they needed to find out exactly what was inside these columns. A workman produced a sledgehammer and proceeded to smash one of them open. To this day, the contents of the stone columns remain a mystery. None of the workmen who were there will ever speak of them. And the ones who were there who have since died have refused to speak of them even on their deathbeds. One apocryphal story, however, tells about how five years after the events, one person who claimed to have been there was drunk in a bar and made some references. According to witnesses there, he said, Their screams, they sounded just like children. Whether he meant the contents of the column themselves or merely the workmen present, he was not specific. The mayor was buried, and spring did return to Waterford that year, even though it was extremely late. The contents of the mills and the buildings themselves were set on fire. The linens were reduced to ashes, though you couldn't say the same for the old brick buildings. Stubborn as they were, they refused to fall over, and to this day they still sit there silent and empty. No one has ever suggested rebuilding anything in their place. The Waterford technique is still done by hand. It's demonstrated for the tourists during the season, and each year some of the textiles go up for sale. Commissions are taken, and that keeps a few of the workers turned craftsmen afloat. And there's even stirrings that somewhere in some obscure areas of the fashion region, it might actually make a comeback of sorts. And for the people of Waterford, well, they guess that'll have to do for now. You have been listening to The Account, A Tale of the Waking World, Interlude 1, the Hue of the River, written and read by Kyan Chris Conroy, part of the Technical Difficulties podcast series at techdiff, T-E-K-D-I-F-F dot com. If you'd like to contact me, go ahead and send me a Gmail at techdiff at gmail.com or leave a comment at techdiff.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Wednesday Wonders right here on the Mutual Audio Network. Please consider subscribing to other days of the Mutual Feeds, including Monday Matinee for classic live and theatrical audio plays, Tuesday Terrors for horror audio drama, Thursday Thrillers for action, adventure, mystery, and crime drama, Friday Follies, our end-of-the-week comedy series, Saturday Story Circle for kids and families alike, and Sunday Showcase, bringing you the very newest in audio releases for the week from our United Artists of Audio, right here on the Mutual Audio Network. The Mutual Audio Drama Network.
where we listen and imagine together. <laughs>